This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Since America's founding, no president has been criminally indicted until now. Already facing 37 state felony charges in New York and 40 federal felony charges in Florida, former President Donald Trump has now been indicted with four additional federal crimes by special counsel Jack Smith for actions following the 2020 elections and those leading up to the chaos in the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. While most Americans already have well-formed opinions about Mr. Trump's fitness for the Oval Office, the unprecedented nature of indicting and bringing to trial a former president of the United States deserves sober scrutiny and a careful process. Indeed, owing to Trump's ability to elicit and activate Americans' most intense partisan reactions, the Department of Justice must be seen to be bringing charges that comport with the commonly applied law and its precedent and are not seen as an opportunistic or weaponized instrument of political oppositions. For the prosecution, the case will not rest on dispute over details of Mr. Trump's actions, as his refusal to accept the results of an election and willingness to flout rules for the peaceful transfer of power were all done in the public's eye. Rather, Mr. Smith will have to prove that the laws specifically written and historically enforced to protect and facilitate elections also apply to a president. What are the crimes for which Mr. Trump has been indicted? What are the guidelines and legal precedents for enforcing these crimes? When will the trial likely take place? And how will this event play out in our strongly, deeply divided court of public opinion? My guest today is Elise Soman, professor of law at George Mason University, whose research focuses on constitutional law, property law, and democratic theory. Professor Soman has written extensively on the detail and merit of the recent federal indictments of Mr. Trump. He will explain the four crimes for which he is accused, their precedents in law, and offer his views on any weaknesses in the prosecution's case. When I return, I'll be joined by George Mason law professor and legal scholar, Elia Soman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by George Mason law professor, Ilya Soman. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here uh, on an issue that really is uh, uh, one of national debate. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about today about the recent indictment of former President Trump by special counsel Jack Smith over the alleged crime he committed related to his efforts to uh, potentially subvert um, the peaceful transfer of power after he lost the election uh, in 2020. Uh, I wanted to have you on our podcast because uh, you've written extensively on on this subject, uh, specifically whether um, uh, the crimes uh, uh, or the alleged crimes fit the actions. Uh, and uh, you are a great scholar that uh, doesn't let uh, partisanship cloud your judgment. So insofar as is possible, I'm sure our listeners will have a strong view on President Trump as an individual, either love him or hate him. Uh, but for those people who really want to sort of consider the merits of this particular uh, case, uh, this is this is the program for for them. Uh, we're going to try to uh, to just focus on the law here. Now, in context, the time we were recording these uh, charges come after uh, some uh, state level charges in New York related to the hush money with Stormy Daniels. There's been other federal charges related to um, a classified document, the handling of classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. But these are separate charges related to. Uh, post-election uh, 2020 and leading up to the January 6th events. So let's start at the beginning um, with the basic law. What has the former president been charged with in this in this case? 
So he's been charged with four separate counts of violating what are essentially three different laws. Uh, one is uh, a law known as 18 U.S.C. 1512, uh, which in the relevant part uh, criminalizes obstructing, influencing, or impeding uh, any official proceeding of the uh, U.S. government. And here we're talking about uh, the certification of the electoral votes in Congress, uh, which Trump attempted to impede and obstruct in various ways, such as uh, by plotting to replace the real electors chosen uh, by state popular vote with fake electors, by trying to pressure Mike Pence the vice president at the time, into refusing to certify the electoral vote, which he did not have the legal authority to do, uh, in a number of other ways as well. Uh, next, uh, we have charges under uh, 18 U.S.C. Section 1371, uh, which forbids, uh, among other things, defrauding the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose. Uh, and here, uh, it's mostly the same course of conduct they already mentioned, but also being a violation of Section 371, as well as the other statute that I previously uh, mentioned. And finally, we have 18 U.S.C. Section 241, uh, which says that it's a crime for two or more persons to conspire, injure, threaten, or intimidate any person uh, in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right secured by the Constitution of the United States. In this case, the relevant rights are rights to participate uh, in elections and in the electoral process. Uh, and uh, the uh, government cites Trump's efforts to overturn the vote count in Georgia and other states uh, to pressure uh, state officials into doing so illegally. And that is seen as obstructing uh, the right to vote of the people uh, in those states and also uh, the electoral process. There is precedent in the Supreme Court going back 100 years, which says that Section 241 applies not just to direct intimidation of voters or the like, but also to efforts to undermine the electoral process. For instance, there's a group of Chicago Democrats who were obstructed, who were convicted under this several decades ago uh, because they uh, tried to rig and falsify the vote count in Chicago, a city which at least in earlier decades had problems with that sort of thing. And even though they didn't intimidate individual voters, uh, nor were their actions, as far as we know, racially motivated, uh, nonetheless, they got convicted. Uh, the statute does have origins in the Reconstruction era uh, when racist whites in the South tried to intimidate Black voters, praying them for participating in the like, uh, but it's written more broadly than that, and the Supreme Court has applied it more broadly than that. Uh, so ultimately, these are three different statutes, uh, but all of the charges, for the most part, uh, are about the same course of conduct, uh, which uh, is the, the plot to subvert the result of the 2020 election by uh, installing fake electors to replace the real ones, by impeding the vote count, uh, uh, the count of the electoral votes uh, when Congress gathered to do that on January 6th, uh, and finally by trying to plot to pressure various state officials into falsifying 
uh, vote counts. I should mention that we're talking now only about the federal charges that were filed uh, now several weeks ago. Uh, tomorrow on the day after we're having a discussion, there are likely to be uh, charges under Georgia state law under which Trump is likely to be indicted in Georgia state court. Since we do not yet know exactly what he's going to be indicted on, uh, I, I can't comment on those. We're just commenting on the federal charges that uh, as of today, August 14th, we already know about. Okay. All right. So you've laid the you laid the groundwork, and uh, we uh, whet the appetite for future indictments. Perhaps uh, we don't know what those are, but let's let's. I think uh, of all the things I've heard uh, that Trump's done uh, bad, uh, th these particular indictments uh, I think rank among the worst. But again, we're not going to color this conversation whether we think Trump is a good guy or a bad guy, ought to be president, or shouldn't be president. Rather, we're going to talk about the law. Um, just before we get into other details about these indictments, there is a big white space under Donald Trump as far as. Uh, um, uh, he is being accused, and they're in the in the indictment. They list six uh, unnamed co-conspirators. Um, explain to our listeners what that means. Why are they unnamed, uh, and you know wh where will they play out in the in the future? So although they're unnamed in the indictment, it is likely that we already know who most of these people are. Uh, the phrase unindicted co-conspirator was made famous, of course, during the Watergate scandal, uh, where the, the men who actually participated in the Watergate hotel break-in were the defendants. Uh, but in the indictment, President Richard Nixon was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. Here, Trump is actually the direct defendant, but there are several men uh, who uh, participated in, or in the plot with him. Uh, actually, I think if I remember correctly, one of them is maybe a woman, so several people. Uh, and uh, uh, those are people who helped in various ways with the plot to install fake electors, to pressure state officials, to try to get Mike Pence to reject the electoral vote count and so on. Uh, it is likely that those individuals, or at least some of them, will be will be indicted later and tried separately. I think Jack Smith, the the special counsel, would prefer to try Trump by himself, uh, so as to make the proceedings simpler and faster. But he may well indict some of these other people. Alternatively, it is possible that some of them might do plea bargains where they agree to testify against Trump uh, for reduced sentences. Uh, but we do know who some of these people are. Perhaps the most prominent is John Eastman, the lawyer, and yes, someone I know and have known for many years. Uh, he is a lawyer and former law professor who uh, advised Trump and urged him to do many of the things that are in the indictment, particularly the effort to get Mike Pence to reject the electoral vote count. Uh, and uh, so uh, legally speaking, prosecutors, if they allege a conspiracy, they're not legally required to charge all the conspirators in the same proceeding. They're not even legally required to go after every single uh, conspirator or co-conspirator uh, at all. They can pick and choose. That's a relatively normal part of the prosecutorial process. But I do think it's likely that Eastman and some of the others will be charged in the future, perhaps sooner rather than later. We'll have to see. Right. So I'm no Sherlock Holmes, but I, even I can I guess who, who each of those six people are by the descriptions in the indictment. Yes. Um, and and many observers have done that. Yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, so you've already sort of answered my question, but um, I was going to ask, are they likely to be indicted or possibly indicted in the future? But in my view, uh, you answered a, a, a deeper question, which is why wouldn't you throw everybody on there that's guilty? Um, 
you've said you want to streamline the the the, the trial and we're going to get to that point later on in our conversation but you said that many may have a plea deal whereby they testify against the president so as to uh let's say so, so, their testimony in exchange for leniency or or amnesty right so I, I don't know if they will or not. All I'm saying is that that's a possibility. And that, too, is uh, standard in these kinds of cases. It's common when you have conspiracies, say, with mob bosses or something like that, that uh, the prosecutors will try to uh, you know, do a make a deal with an underling to have the underling uh, um uh, you know, testify against the boss. So similarly here, by far the most important figure on all of this wrongdoing and conspiracy is obviously Trump. Uh, so if the prosecution has the opportunity to make a deal uh, with one of these underlings uh, to testify against him, they might be willing to do that. Whether that's actually going to happen or not, you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. So for the benefit of our listeners, this is a pretty long indictment. I, I read through the whole thing. It's pretty bad. I, I'd say, uh, you know, if you don't like Trump, this you, you will be thrilled by this uh, this long, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, missive on his, his actions. Um, does this ref reflect the entirety of Jack Smith's case? In other words, if one reads this, can one, in a sense, deduce whether uh, this is a solid case? Or is this essentially just saying these broad strokes. And when we get to the trial, then I'll give you the actual facts, the actual details, the actual meaning. So it's more the latter. Given the amount of evidence in these cases that's already publicly available, we know that what's in the indictment is not everything that Jack Smith has. And there's a good chance that he has more that's neither in the indictment nor already publicly available. But we know from the January 6th commission report that there's a lot of additional stuff because they interviewed dozens of witnesses, including many who provided what, at least to me, seems like relevant evidence. Uh, we know also that uh, the special counsel's office has interviewed a lot of people who not all of them are necessarily mentioned here. And I mentioned already the possibility of uh, there could be testimony from people they've made deals with and the like. So it is highly unlikely, indeed almost impossible, that what's in the indictment is the sum total of the evidence uh, that Jack Smith has. There is likely to be more. But I would add that one way in which this case differs from Watergate, uh, uh, which is you know, the closest thing to a precedent that we have, uh, is that uh, a lot of the uh, criminal activity and wrongdoing that Trump engaged in was sort of out in the open. Uh, Nixon knew that if his role in the break-ins and related activities was revealed, it would be bad for him. And he knew, uh, and, and therefore he tried to cover it up. Uh, with Trump, he pretty much openly said that he wanted to overturn the election, uh, that he wouldn't accept the result, and that he was going to do everything he can, including inciting violence, uh, to uh, make it happen. Uh, so, uh, in that respect, while there are a lot of interesting and in some cases new details in the indictment and in the January 6th committee hearings that, uh, you know, that happened earlier, there are also large parts of this criminal activity that just happened in plain sight. So uh, this, I think, dovetails well with my first question. So I want to go deep because I think the essence of, of these charges are the defrauding or the, the charge of fraud. And again, I'm a layperson, uh, but I've, I'm, you know, I've tried to read enough on this that that I see really there's a lot of pushback on this notion that statutorily fraud is very, very carefully defined. Um, and generally, um, it relates again, we're talking about this statute 371, 
uh, it, it was related to uh, crimes that affect the theft of property, not necessarily um, fooling the government, but rather stealing from the government or stealing. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you have that wrong. So it's Perfect. understandable that people who are not expert on these specific sections of the law would think, well, fraud must involve the theft of property or some tangible material object. That may indeed be true under many fraud statutes, but it's not true under Section 371, which is much more broadly worded than that, and which the Supreme Court has defined for over 100 years uh, as impeding uh, 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 material uh, proceedings of the federal government uh, in various ways that go beyond, you know, getting any kind of property from the government unlawfully. For example, in the 1924 case of Hammersmith versus United States, uh, they say that this covers any uh, action that, quote, interferes with or obstructs one of its lawful government functions by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. Uh, and here, the lawful government functions is the uh, counting of the votes, the certification of the electoral votes, and the like. Uh, it doesn't involve uh, theft of property or tangible material items of some kind. Uh, but the Supreme Court has said for 100 years that this particular fraud statute uh, goes beyond that. Uh, and while there may be other fraud statutes, which are much more limited than that, uh, you know, that's uh, you know, doesn't apply to Section 371. It is often the case in both the law and in ordinary language that the same word can have somewhat different meanings depending on the context. So it would not be surprising if there are some federal fraud statutes where the definition of fraud is relatively narrow and others where the definition is broad. Some are actually con uh, you know, concerned with property crimes or people stealing from each other. Uh, this fraud statute is concerned with disrupting or undermining government proceedings. Uh, and in most cases, the problem is not that property is being stolen, uh, but that the functions of government are being impaired. Uh, but uh, let me just say, I, I, again, I'm not the legal scholar, but I, I've read enough of the legal scholars that pr 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 you know talk about precedent as you do. Again, you're going back to 19... Uh, 15, but uh, specifically the cases of Simonelli versus United States and Cleveland versus United States, the statutes that address money or property, why why aren't those, and these are far more recent than- yeah, Those are about different statutes. They're not about Section 371. They're okay. about things like the Federal Wire Fraud Act. It is very common for a similar word or phrase to mean one thing in one statute and another in another statute. Moreover, the Supreme Court has precedent which says that uh, there is a very strong presumption against overturning statutory precedents as opposed to constitutional ones. So when the Supreme Court has been interpreting Section 371 a particular way for a for 100 years and more, it is extremely unlikely to be overturned. It is true that fraud is defined more narrowly under other statutes where we're talking about things like private individuals defrauding each other. On the other hand, when you have Section 371, a statute that's about interfering with government proceedings uh, and the like, that is defined more broadly um, and has been for, for, centuries, for decades. Uh, so I don't want to argue with you about precedent because that's your that's your uh, field of study. Um, what about uh, speaking to the uh, president's uh, state of mind? You've made reference to uh, you know knowingly lying and all these kinds of things, but again, the defenders of the president would say whether it's uh, pathological or or genuine, he seems to at, from time to time either believe that the um, uh, election was stolen or be giving from like 
folks like John Eastman, um, a legal scholar, John Eastman, I'll put that in quotation mark, air quotes, um, telling him these are, um, the, the, the election was, uh, was stolen and these are legal and um, authentic ways to change the outcome as it was you know, otherwise determined. So this is one of the more substantial arguments made by Trump's defenders. The basic idea is that, it, that it, in order to be convicted of a crime, you have to have a criminal state of mind. You had to know that you were doing something that uh, was a crime. And in particular, arguably, to commit fraud, you had to know that you were deceiving people rather than telling the truth. Uh, but while this argument is a non-trivial one, I think there are uh, several levels of problems with it. Uh, the first level is that there is, in fact, a lot of evidence that Trump knew that he lost the election. Uh, indeed, Cassidy Hutchinson, one of his former staff members, has testified to the January 6th commission that he specifically said in the aftermath of the election, we don't want anybody to know that we lost because it would be embarrassing. Uh, there, are similar there are similar statements by people like his attorney general, uh, Bill Barr, who discussed the election with him extensively in the aftermath of it. And he believes the same thing that Trump knew that he lost. And there's a good deal of other evidence like that, some of it in the indictment, some of it available elsewhere. And it is likely, not certain, but likely that Jack Smith can present additional evidence to that effect uh, that we, it is not yet public, but uh, will be included in the trial. Secondly, even if uh, Trump did not uh, know that he lost the election, uh, still Trump had no reason to think that the fake electors he were promote he was promoting were actually real ones. And so he surely had knowledge that they were bogus, uh, even if uh, he still thought he won the election. Those people, uh, most of them weren't even on Trump's electoral slate for the election. When elections happen, uh, each uh, candidate puts forward a slate for their uh, electors. And uh, if they win the popular vote in that state, uh, then their slate that they put forward, they, they become the official electors. Obviously, if somebody else wins, then it's that person's slate. Uh, but people who are not in any electoral slate are clearly not qualified to be electors. And that's what those fake electors were. Uh, the same thing can be said about the effort to get Mike Pence uh, to reject the electoral vote, uh, even if it was the case that Trump thought he won the election, it does not follow that he had any basis for thinking that Pence had the right to reject electoral votes. Uh, it is true that Trump sought out some legal advice by people who would tell him things that he wanted to hear. Uh, if that gets you out of committing fraud, then all of us can commit fraud anytime we want, so long as we find some hack lawyer to tell us, well, actually, what you're doing uh, is legal. And then the final weakness uh, with this line of argument is that there has to be a limit to this idea that uh, you can't commit fraud if you, you know, if you thought you were doing the right thing. If you're constantly selling snake oil uh, and there's no reason to think that the thing that you're selling actually cures the disease, the mere fact that you've persuaded yourself by finding some quacks to tell you that the snake oil is actually a cure for cancer, at some level, uh, if, if beyond a certain point, that can't justify your getting off for selling the snake oil because, uh, you, because you should have known uh, that it was snake oil. There 
was no good reason to think that it wasn't. Uh, and if the only reason you think that it wasn't is that you searched around for somebody who would tell you what you want to hear, uh, and then you decided to believe them, uh, you're still a snake oil salesman, you're still guilty of fraud. Uh, and the same thing applies here. The people who actually had uh, uh, you know, reasonable qualifications in this area, Trump's own campaign advisors, attorney general, virtually any other re reasonable or reputable expert, they all told him he lost. The evidence was overwhelming that he lost. He found a few hacks or in some cases, people who may have had expertise in other things, but did not have expertise in these in this area of law. John Eastman is one such person. Eastman does have expertise on some other areas of law. He is not an expert on election law. He doesn't know anything about vote counting and the like. Uh, and therefore, the fact that Eastman and a few other similar unqualified people told Trump what he wanted to hear, and you can make an argument that Trump believed that, though it's not actually clear that he did, but maybe you can make an argument uh, to that effect that still doesn't uh, excuse the fraud any more than it would in the case of the uh, snake oil salesman. So let me turn that argument completely on his head and tie two things that you said earlier. One was um, that uh, Trump's lies were in the open, meaning we all heard them and saw them. There's not much dispute on the facts in the case. And to use your snake oil analogy and say, if everybody in the audience knows it's snake oil and you tell them it's snake oil, um, you know, where at what point does that become criminalized? In other words, everybody in this uh, clown show, if you will, or I don't want to make normative assertions, but in theory, everybody, if they were lying, everybody knew they were lying and everyone knew this was sort of a a, a bogus and, and doomed effort. Um, where does the criminal line be drawn if you're, again, amongst the characters of everybody being in on the same grift? Where, where at what point does saying you won the election become criminal and, and, and all the things that follow from that become criminal? Yeah. So I think there's three problems with that argument. Yeah. One is uh, in order for something to be a conspiracy to commit fraud or even to, it doesn't have to succeed. Uh, people all the time get convicted for crimes that they tried to commit, but uh, failed. So the second problem is, of course, many millions of people did believe the lies, just as uh, there are people who are willing to buy snake oil. Uh, I actually have a whole book called Democracy and Political Ignorance, where I describe how people are more willing and more to buy and accept snake oil in dealing with political issues than in sort of ordinary economic transactions involving the more common type of snake oil. And then the third point is that uh, Trump is not actually being charged merely for saying uh, that he actually won the election or that there was fraud. That by itself is, is not a crime. He is charged uh, with the activities uh, that arose from uh, those statements uh, and from his efforts to overturn the election, such as uh, trying to install fake electors, trying to get state officials to falsify vote counts, uh, and trying to get Mike Pence to refuse to certify the electoral count. Uh, and so uh, those are the crimes. Uh, it is not merely stating that uh, it is not merely stating that uh, you know, he was the legitimate winner uh, of the election. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction. Uh, and while uh, it is true uh, that many of the officials that he tried to pressure and the like, uh, that, you know, they as individuals knew most likely that, you know, his claims were false. The ultimate victim, legally speaking, of the uh, conspiracy to commit fraud is the U.S. government, which, of course, is uh, a uh, it, it, it is is not a person, but an entity. And so if he had gotten those officials to cooperate with them, the, the government would have been victimized. Uh, and the fact that they 
everybody knew that it was a lie would just make them more guilty rather than uh, less. Uh, and similarly, uh, when it comes to 18 U.S.C. Section 241, uh, the victims were uh, the voters whose votes would have been negated by uh, his schemes had the scheme worked and the fact that the voters knew uh, many of them at least knew that uh you know that his claims were wise that in no way diminishes the victimization that would have occurred okay and i want to again before we get off this fraud uh, question i want to lean heavily on your expertise and, and again play devil's advocate i've been doing the research on uh, the different precedents and um and my concern about this and the reason i keep pressing on this is if he is ultimately convicted of this particular count um fraud um, I'm concerned, or I've read others that are concerned that the Supreme Court ultimately, if, if they hear the appeal, uh, would be, um, you know, as far as the black letter law of fraud may be tempted to overturn the conviction, which if you don't believe Trump's a good guy, you won't want to see. Um, specifically, the the um, precedent of the McNally decision, which said, you know, um, uh, schemes to manipulate the government process is different from fraud against the government, right? What we're describing is taking every possible measure that let's say his creative lawyers could come up with you know beyond breaking the law let's let's uh, you know assume that was their their effort they didn't want to break the law and they want to twist the rules as far as they could go before breaking is it your concern that the particularly with recent precedent of of the um, Supreme Court going all the way to Kagan, who who is narrowly defined fraud, is your concern? Do you have any concern that the, the Supreme Court might not be as generous with the, with the, the labeling of fraud as you are? No, because that precedent, as I've tried to say before, was under a different statute. It okay. was not under Section 371, which, as I've already had occasion to point out, for over 100 years, the Supreme Court has defined broadly as interfering uh, with the government processes. Uh, and for instance, in the 1924 case uh, of Hammersfield versus the United States, they said that uh, that uh, it, under the statute, it's unlawful to, quote, interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful government functions by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. That's easily sufficiently broad to uh, include the conduct alleged against Trump. And the Supreme Court just this year uh, in the Voting Rights Act case has reaffirmed its very strong precedent uh, against overturning statutory precedent. So uh, I think uh, there is a difference between this statute and some other fraud statutes where the definition of fraud uh, is narrower. Uh, and I think it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court will overturn or significantly limit that previous precedent. Indeed, I'm far from convinced that the Supreme Court would even hear an appeal uh, from uh, this case. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's more likely, it's not certain, but it's more likely uh, that these issues would just be determined by the lower courts. Okay, well, let's. I wanna move on because we have three more counts. Uh, specifically, we wanna talk about the um, uh, obstruction uh, charges, uh, those that uh, presumably we're talking about January 6th and, and all the, the chaos that went on there. Uh, we're effectively trying to tie uh, Donald Trump to what went on uh, at the Capitol. Um, again, if we're talking only legal, uh, we all can uh, draw a line between um, Trump's statements and fomenting uh, unrest and ultimately perhaps we could have predicted uh, what would happen next, but we can't draw a causational issue. Can, can Where does the law and how would uh, the prosecution link Donald Trump to the actions that, frankly, 
thousands of people, or at least hundreds of people have been prosecuted for as culpable. Uh, they can't blame the president for their actions. They have to blame themselves. How can both the president and the rioters be blamed for this obstruction? I think the key thing to be understand here is that he's not actually being charged with the violent assault on the Capitol or with inciting it. There was talk that he might be uh, charged with inciting insurrection or other similar charges, but Jack Smith actually didn't do that. Uh, the, the January 6th event that he's being charged with is the attempt to pressure uh, uh, Mike Pence into refusing to certify the electoral vote. And the only connection to what happened at the Capitol uh, when, when the uh, when the rioters attacked is that while that was going on during that time, uh, apparently Trump, again, during that, while there was the violent attack going on, was still in the process of trying to pressure Pence into rejecting certification and trying to use the threat of the attackers as further leverage uh, to do that. But he is not actually being uh, charged with the incitement of the riot or the resulting violence. There's a, a reasonably decent argument that he should have been charged with that, but he wasn't. Uh, he, he is being charged. Uh, all, all of the four counts that we're talking about, they're about uh, pressuring Pence, pressuring state officials, uh, you know, the fake electro scheme and the like. He is not actually being charged with criminal culpability for the violence that occurred uh, on January 6th. So it's the pressure he applied to, to the obstruction is uh, obviously Pence was instrumental in the, in the, those proceedings yeah. uh, and his yeah. pressure. Um, against uh, specifically the vice president is, is how he's obstructed that particular yes. event. And, and, and also by trying to replace the uh, real electors with fake ones and uh, the like. Which getting to the conspiracy, again, is a separate crime. The conspiracy that's leading up to or planning to obstruct it. Um, he, he knew, let's say, presumably he's being charged with knowingly creating the false electors and and knowingly sort of having a whole plan before the actual day occurs. And then yeah, the if, if you read the indictment and other available evidence, there was extensive discussions between Trump, the unindicted co-conspirators you mentioned earlier, plus also the fake electors themselves in many states uh, to try to uh, get these people uh, installed in place of the real electors uh, and then, uh, you know, either get Congress to recognize them or more likely because it's unlikely that Congress was going to do that to get Pence to uh, set aside the certification of the vote uh, of, of the uh, of the electoral vote by Congress uh, as all part of that scheme. All right. And I don't want to leave off that you, you alluded to it or you, you, you described it in, in your uh uh, uh, opening remarks, but we want to talk about the final um, charge, which is the de denial of rights, specifically voting rights. I, I think we have voting rights. We have the right to be, you know, if we do vote, we have the right to that be registered. Yeah, the, the defenders of, uh, or, or uh, I won't say defenders of Trump, but let's say people who would, uh, would suggest that this is not a valid claim would say, okay, look, there's a right to cast a vote and have that vote counted. If the if Trump tries to go out there, and again, we may be talking about this in the future with regard to, to Georgia, but if Trump goes out there and tries to, in his view, find votes that uh, were perhaps cast but ignored or or lose votes that were improperly cast, that said, you know, uh, all these talks of... Uh, De dead voters. I'm I'm not in this camp, but again, I'm I'm here to play devil's advocate. The you know two thousand mules argument. If he's knowingly trying to uh, get rid of bad votes and uh, find good votes, uh, how is that a sort of taking someone's voting rights away? So I would say two things. One is uh, this statute is not limited just to taking away the voting rights of individuals. 
It includes subverting the electoral process as a whole. And there's, again, here, too, 100 years of precedent, uh, which says that, including the Chicago case that I mentioned. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, he had no basis for believing that there were you know, vote, proper votes that hadn't been counted or uh, any significant number of improper votes that were counted. And in his conversations with Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State and other officials, there is zero evidence uh, that his goal was merely limited to any improperly counted votes. He specifically tells Raffensperger, find 11,780 votes, which would have been the number that he needed to overturn Biden's margin in that state. So there is no evidence really that any of this was driven by concern for the truth. It was all driven by a desire to find the right number of votes to overturn the election result. I would add also that, uh, you know, there are certainly elections where the margin is close enough that uh, it falls within what lawyers call, lawyers specialists in this area call the margin of litigation, that it could potentially be overturned by litigation or recounts or the like. In Georgia and in every one of these other states uh, uh, that were contested by Trump, uh, we're talking about many thousands of votes. We're talking about a margin large enough that never in the history of the uh, modern U.S. Uh, has an election been overturned when the initial margin was this large. And therefore, any experienced and, and uh, capable election lawyer could tell him that there was zero chance uh, of finding sufficient votes or fraud or whatnot uh, to overturn the result, especially since it's important to remember overturning it in one state would not have been enough. This is not like the 2000 election where it came down to a 500 vote margin or so in one state, Florida. So overturning the result in Georgia would not have been enough. He would have had to do at least a couple more states in order to make it happen. Uh, and so he would have had to all told overturn probably 100,000 or more votes spread across multiple states, and there was zero chance of that ever happening uh, or uh, of fraud or chicanery on a large enough scale to uh, create a margin like that occurring without being uh, detected through normal processes. Well, I'm, I, I want to pull back a little bit, and you know, before we sort of wrap this up, I want to say that the one adjective used for all of this uh, on both sides, and in everything I read, is the word "unprecedented," and the the idea that we're again we're going to be trying a president, a former president of the United States, in, in a court of law. Uh, of course, it's unprecedented. There are those, of course, who argue that the reason is unprecedented. We've never encountered someone, let's say, as un uniquely unprincipled as Donald Trump. I, you know, if, if Donald Trump listeners will forgive me for calling him unprincipled, I hope I hope I can get away with that. Um, some will say that's why it's unprecedented. We haven't met someone like Trump before. Others, I think, more persuasively argue that there should be some concern about employing an executive branch, a Department of Justice executive branch, uh, to to weigh in on matters of elections, which is to say a, 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 a political branch, uh, you know, sort of uh, convicting or, or uh, indicting and convicting people for the process of getting elected. Uh, there seems to be something uh, uneasy about creating laws and enforcing laws in this process of, of uh, elections, whereby taking the wrong way and taking too broadly, uh, you could criminalize a great deal of things that could be weaponized. Again, we're talking about precedent. In the future, someone could not like an election result and use these same weapons we're using to defend elections against uh, future uh, politicians. What, what do you say to that? I would say, let's step back a moment and ask, uh, 
you know, the key to, what is the key to democratic process? The key to democratic process is uh, that uh, people are chosen through uh, elections. And if they lose, they have to leave power. If a president or any government official, but especially a president being the most powerful official in the land, refuses to leave office when he's clearly and obviously lost an election and instead tries to stay in power by force and fraud, to my mind, it would set a troubling, dangerous and completely unacceptable precedent if such a person would just get away with that kind of behavior and get off scot-free without any meaningful punishment. Uh, and therefore, it is important and essential that there be uh, 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 punishment here, uh, preferably severe punishment, so as to do proper retribution for the magnitude of the evil that was attempted, and so as to deter other politicians of any party from doing the same thing kind of thing in the future. Uh, and so we're going to talk about precedent. That's the precedent to be concerned about. We've talked in detail about the charges. None of them involve prosecuting Trump or anybody else simply for just saying the election was rigged. None of them involve prosecuting him for using normal legal processes to challenge the election results, like he filed 60 or more cases, almost all of which he lost. Uh, if he had limited himself to that, while that might have been somewhat bad behavior or problematic, it was not illegal and nobody would have prosecuted him for that. Uh, if he had even simply left office without uh, accepting that he had been defeated, but also without engaging in these plots and chicanery uh, about uh, trying to get Pence to reject the electoral vote counter, having to have fake electors and so on, once again, he wouldn't have been charged with anything. Uh, so if we're going to talk about precedent, I say the really bad precedent to be concerned about is the precedent that would be set by letting this man get off scot-free. I do recognize that there is a history of illegal behavior by presidents and other powerful politicians that in some cases has not been properly punished or properly dealt with. We could talk all day about that. I think to the extent that's true, uh, it becomes all the more important to begin to roll that back in this particularly egregious and awful case. And I would add also that the usual argument that's made for letting presidents and other high officials slide when it comes to illegality as well, they're subject to political punishment. I think that argument is actually flawed in general in various ways that we can talk about, but it's particularly flawed in a situation where the whole point of the crime was actually to short circuit the process of political accountability. The electorate, or at least the majority of it, didn't like Trump's performance in office. They decided to get rid of him through normal electoral processes, and then he tried to subvert that. So you can't argue that political accountability is sufficient for a crime whose very purpose was to subvert that very political accountability. I actually think it's not sufficient for some other kinds of presidential wrongdoing that should have been punished more in the past. I think it was a mistake to pardon Richard Nixon after he was forced out of office. Uh, I think it would have been better. It would have been a better president if he had been properly prosecuted and convicted for Watergate break-in and other things of that sort. Uh, and uh, I think uh, this uh, argument applies even more to this case uh, where Trump went much farther than Nixon did in trying to subvert the electoral process uh, through illegal means. Um, again, well, we've already gone over time, and I appreciate you, you extending a little bit with me here. But I want to really uh, plant this seed in, in everyone's mind listening. This is going to go to trial, right? I think we've all sure. been watching uh, for seven years, coming on eight years, like the walls have been closing on Donald Trump. You know, he's been under investigation from the moment he took office. So people have become a little bit numb or 
you know, inured to the headlines of the walls are closing in on Donald Trump. They haven't closed in yet. This is actually finally uh, an opportunity where he's going to be sitting in a room with a judge in front of him and 12 jurors of, I don't know if he has any peers, but 12, you know, let's say impartial Americans, you know, deciding whether you're right or not, uh, whether they agree with your assertion that he is indeed guilty. Um, when is this going to happen? And, and do I have it right? Or is this going to be some sort of special, you know, event on a cloud or in some behind some closed so, doors? First, while it is very likely that there will be a trial, it's not 100 percent certain. There's always a small chance that there will be some kind of plea bargain or the like. It's unlikely, but in theory, it could happen. In theory, it could happen. The courts would throw out the, tra the charges beforehand for legal reasons. Again, very unlikely, but uh, it could happen. Uh, assuming none of that kind of thing occurs, there is likely to be a trial in this case that begins sometime early to mid next year. I say likely because a lot depends on the discretion of the trial judge. So far, it seems like she would like to move the case along reasonably quickly, but you know, the delays could potentially arise. Uh, so uh, there is a good chance that next year there will be a trial in this case. Also, a trial in the classified documents case is likely to occur next year and possibly in the New York case as well. Should there be indictments in the Georgia case, which uh, are likely to come tomorrow, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, who knows when that trial will be. But one of the difficulties logistically will be sort of trying to schedule all four of these trials in ways that. Uh, wouldn't conflict with each other too much and actually don't know that much about how state courts might coordinate with federal courts to try to keep all of this uh, straight. I'm not an expert on that. And in this respect, uh, this situation is a little bit unprecedented because it's rare to have a defendant simultaneously being charged in both state and federal court over multiple issues and also someone who, of course, is as prominent as Trump and has all these other demands on his schedule. So we'll see how it works, but it is likely that at least most of these cases, there will be trials next year. And again, not to beat this too hard, but it's a, you, you mentioned the trial um, judge has a lot of uh, prerogative here as far as when the uh, jury, uh, when the trial occurs. You, you've, you've characterized uh, Trump's actions, uh, I love the word chicanery, uh, are any of his legal uh, recourses uh, and his chicanery, can he just drag this out in a sense, making it a, a battle cry? I, I think is, he is, of course, running for re-election uh, as for president. He's called this his vengeance uh, tour. Uh, so um, I'll, I'm a double-barreled last question. Uh, can he drag this out, uh, making the claim that you can't you can't try me while I'm a, I'm a candidate? It would interfere with the political process. And ultimately, if he's convicted, which again, if I interpret your remarks, he sh could and should be perhaps, can he or future presidents just pardon himself and making our conversation, this whole trial and all the charges moot? So there's several questions there. One is Trump can, of course, try to delay the trial proceedings, but the judge in this case and also the judge in the other case have a lot of discretion as to whether they're going to let him or not. It seems so far, I don't know for sure if there could be other issues that arise, but so far it doesn't seem like the judge in the uh, election-related federal case that she's very amenable to his efforts to uh, delay things. Uh, the judge in the classified documents case, it seems like so far she's sort of been splitting the difference between Trump's demands and those that are prosecution. Uh, and I'm also not, I'm not sure what's going on in the New York State case. So uh, while Trump can try to delay things, ultimately the judges hearing the cases uh, have most of the power 
honor about scheduling. Uh, certainly, uh, when it comes to federal charges, a president could pardon Trump, just as Richard Nixon got pardoned by Gerald Ford. Whether if Trump gets reelected uh, or, or gets elected again, uh, rather, uh, if, if Trump gets elected, whether he could pardon himself, that's actually a point of dispute among legal scholars. That issue has never gone to court. So if Trump were to pardon himself, the legality of that pardon would likely be challenged in court. And, you know, we'd have to see what courts decide on that. Of course, uh, um, Trump could not, neither Trump nor any president could pardon him on the state charges in Georgia and New York. So there might be, I hope it doesn't work out this way, but you can imagine a scenario where Trump gets convicted in Georgia. And on the one hand, he's the president of the United States, but on the other hand, he's been convicted and sentenced perhaps to prison time in Georgia. So uh, in principle, we could get a situation where Trump is president of the United States and he's trying to govern the country from a Georgia prison or something like that. I hope that doesn't happen. I don't consider this to be the most likely scenario, but it can't be categorically ruled out in advance. There are such precedents as a mayor of Boston about 100 years ago uh, being mayor while also being in prison. Uh, Obviously, mayor of Boston is a different kind of office than president of the United States. Indeed. Again, my my final final question, of course, um, this will be tried in front of 12, 12 ordinary people. Uh, you and I are both old enough to, I think, remember, I certainly do, remember the OJ trial. Which, yeah, I'm old enough as well. <laughs> yeah, to have watched that and to find a non, not, you know, a, a not guilty verdict. You know, again, for all the OJ supporters in our audience, uh, forgive me, but he seemed clearly guilty, but the, the jury didn't see it that way. If they say he's innocent, he's innocent, right? He, he, he walks. Uh, so oh, not guilty, not guilty. Sure. If, if, if there's a unanimous jury verdict that he's not guilty, yes, absolutely. He walked just like OJ walked. And while I might consider that to be a mistaken verdict, just as I like you, I think the OJ verdict was mistaken verdict. I can't, you know, I don't need Ryan or anybody else who doesn't like the verdict, who had the power to put him in prison in that case. Uh, you know, that's one of the risks of the tr- uh, jury trial process. Uh, if on the other hand, you have a hung jury, that is the jury simply can't agree, say 10 jurors think one thing and two jurors think another thing. Uh, then those charges can potentially be refiled, uh, you know, with a new jury, and you know that would be an option the prosecution uh, would have. Obviously, as with the uh, OJ case, jury selection is going to be quite an issue here, uh, given that uh, even more than OJ Simpson, I think Trump is a person that's well known to m- most of the population, and many people obviously have strong opinions of, about him. So uh, jury selection, to put him out, would be more difficult uh, than in the average case, probably even more difficult than it was in the O.J. Simpson case, where he was a big celebrity, but not known to quite the same extent uh, uh, as, as Trump. Indeed. Well, we've gone way over time, and I really appreciate you, you spending sure. the time. I, I, again, I had you on here because you you play it by the book right down the, the line. I think our listeners whether they think Trump's the best guy in the world or the worst guy in the world. Hopefully both sides got a little bit more information to work with. And uh, uh, we, we've continued to deliver a, uh, let's say a nonpartisan right down the middle kind of explanation of what's going on. So thank you very much for your wisdom and your neutrality and your uh, uh, scholarship. Thank you very much, Ilya, for joining me on Hubwall. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. 
We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for another episode of Hubwonk.